Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you answer us when we call. You are on high, yet you care for the lowly. You keep us safe as we walk in the midst of trouble, and you make good on your promises to your people. Do so now as we receive the gift of this word. Strengthen us by your steadfast love and prepare us to worship you here, now, in this place, in all places, and in all things. All of this we pray to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What are we doing here? I mean, I know it's Sunday morning. It's, it's a church. We're here for worship, right? But what are we doing here? See, I'm sure the disciples were wondering the same thing as they walked through the streets of Caesarea Philippi with, with Jesus You see, in this place, in this city, it's a city on the edge of King David's kingdom. But now, in the time of Jesus, some thousand years later, it's a hub of commerce, a center for pagan worship, a huge supporter of the Roman Empire, of Caesar, and the forces of this world that represent all the evils, the injustices, the affliction of those under the empire's feet, Israel being no exception. Statues of Caesar and Pan, the pagan god of uh, fertility, revelry, line the streets. And it's in this place, this place of Roman power and authority, that Jesus asks his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Now that sounds like a simple enough question. We, we Christians look to Jesus as the Son of Man. Throughout Scripture, there's multiple references to this, but, but these disciples, they have a different image in mind. The title, Son of Man, comes from the book of Daniel, and it refers to God's servant sent to rescue Israel from slavery in Babylon. This Son of Man is God's divine champion, warrior, given authority to bind those who bring affliction to God's people and loose or unleash God's kingdom, God's reign of justice across the earth. Now, in Jesus' time, God's people are afflicted by a new Babylon, the Romans. And Jesus asks His disciples, 
Who do people think that God has sent now in this time and in this place to deliver Israel from this captivity? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, John the Baptist, he's, he's a good choice. He's a charismatic preacher. He's one who's preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness. He could be the one. But in Matthew's Gospel, John's death was recorded in chapter 14, two chapters prior to the one we've read from today. John died as a victim of Roman cruelty and jealousy and hatred. If he was the Son of Man... If he was God's servant sent to deliver the people of Israel, he died at the hands of the people he came to judge. So then what about Elijah? Remember that he was taken up into heaven by a chariot of fire and was thought by many of Jesus' day to be the one who would return at the time of God's great day. But Elijah is nowhere to be found. And when he shows up later in Matthew's gospel on the mountain with Jesus during his transfiguration, it's Jesus who's at the center of that picture, not Elijah. Then again, some said Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. The prophets who spoke God's word to the people who called them to repent, to turn from their wicked ways and return to the God who delivered them who delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. These prophets, they're, they're dead as well. And their words seem shrouded in the face of legions of soldiers, a leader who's more concerned with himself than the people he governs, and a mentality that violence is the ultimate symbol of power and authority. Prophets and preachers, dead, gone, and unseen. These are the people who are on the short list to be God's Savior, God's Deliverer from these Romans. But Jesus isn't done quite yet. See, these disciples, they've followed Him around the Galilean countryside. They've witnessed Him heal the sick and walk on the stormy waters. They've sat at His feet and listened to His teachings. And so he wants to know what they're doing with him. They must have some opinion about him. Otherwise, why still follow? And so he asks, who do you say that I am? What Jesus is asking for here is quite simply a confession. To make a statement of truth about who they see and experience Jesus to be in their midst. And so we hear from Peter, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter says with these few words that Jesus is more than just one to bring people out of bondage from a corrupt government. He's God's anointed Savior of the entire world. The one who has authority not just over the nations, but over all of God's good creation. Peter confesses rightly. And for that, Jesus blesses him and gives him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So what are we doing here? The keys of the kingdom have been given to Peter, to us, the church. But what does that mean to bind and to loose? Traditionally, the keys have dealt primarily with confession of our sin 
and of God's good promise to forgive those sins as we confess them. Things known and unknown, things done and left undone. But the thing about these, these keys, these confessions that we raise to God is that it's much deeper than admitting our fault and receiving forgiveness from them. When we confess our sins together as a worshiping community or in private with our brothers and sisters as we did at the beginning of worship this morning, what we're actually doing during that confession, during that time of silence, of prayer, of meditation, is we're pointing to the God who can take those evil things away from us. Who are we confessing to? When Jesus comes walking to the Jordan, what does John the Baptist say to him? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a confession. That's a statement of truth. A confession, a profession of faith. Behold this God who is so good as to take away our sin, take away our hurt, take away our pain. We point to Jesus, we confess the good name of God through our hymns, through our prayers. We give thanks to the Almighty God who is worthy of our praise and hears us in our struggles. We point to God, we confess this faith we share when we baptize a newborn. Or we come to this table to share in the gifts of Holy Communion because we know, we know that it is in God that we live and move and have our being. We point to God in the neighborhoods where you've sent the youth of this congregation to serve on mission trips, in the food banks, in the food pantries, in the soup kitchens, where you serve with your time and your money and your efforts to feed the homeless of the Lehigh Valley. We point to the God who bears our burdens and walks with us in this life when you comfort a coworker or a neighbor or a friend, or an enemy in the time of their grief. When Jesus gave Peter and the church the power to loose and to bind, He gave us the power, the authority, to make these confessions everywhere we go, with everyone we serve, in everything we do. Jesus is saying, You, Peter, you disciples, you people who follow Me, you have the authority in this world. Not Caesar. Not Rome. Not these pagan gods. Not presidents and princes. You. We the people of God have been given the authority, the power, the responsibility to bind ourselves together with one another in God, in Christ Jesus, as neighbors, as friends, as a family. And yes, at times, as enemies, learning to become friends, as Jesus commanded His disciples to do. We, God's children, have been given the authority to let loose on this world that love that we share, the mercy we receive through the gifts of water, wine, bread, and word. And so what are we doing here? Because this is an awesome, a frightening, sometimes a dawning responsibility. We ask ourselves when we turn on the news, how can we do all of these things in a world filled with such violence? How can we be so bold at a time where it seems like everything comes crashing down? 
How can we be that faithful in the face of everything that's going on in our lives this day and the next? So Paul gives us a formula. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul gives us a formula to do these things, to live with this power and authority, with these keys to the kingdom, and calls us by God's power to present our bodies, not just our minds and our hearts, all that we are, as a living sacrifice, an offering that does not die, that does not dwindle, that does not go away, but that continues to grow and love and spread throughout this world with mercy, with holiness. With these keys, we have been given the power to bind and loose the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world with all that we are and all that we do. A confession of faith that is acceptable to the God who makes us acceptable in Christ Jesus. In spite of all that we are and all that we aren't. That is our spiritual worship. You know, the members of the call committee and the members of council can tell you that when I met with both of them over a month ago, I spoke of this verse from Romans. I urge you, I beg of you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in God's sight. That is your spiritual worship. The same word for worship in Scripture is also service. If we think that worship starts at 9.30 on a Sunday morning and ends with the last hymn is over, what are we doing here? Our entire life, every breath we breathe, is an act of worship and service to God. An act of unleashing the kingdom in this world. This is the kingdom that Jesus has given us. The one which even the gates of hell will not prevail against. The church is God's rock in this world. The place of our home, our comfort, our refuge, our strength. Our rest in Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. Though sin and death, hatred and violence surround us, our neighboring congregations dwindle and people turn from the church. God's presence in us causes us to live and to prevail and to endure against the forces of hell itself. Bound together as one body, as one family in Christ. Turned loose, unleashed on this world. To proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So what are we doing here? We are here to worship. We're here to serve and to confess and to learn from one another how to worship God in our homes, in this community, in our workplace, at school, and in this world through every single thing that we do with every single thing that we have, and with every single person that God puts in our lives. Always carrying with us each and every day the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Amen.